Blessings, and welcome to the Ecclesia Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing insight on worship renewal throughout the entire Christian faith. I am your host, Dr. Kevin Myers, and each week I will be joined by Dr. Jim Hart and other special guests as we enter into discussion on the various topics of Christian worship and how to better worship together as the unified body of Christ. This podcast is sponsored and hosted by the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies, an institution focused solely on worship education. The mission of IWS is to form servant leaders in Christian worship renewal and education through graduate academic praxis grounded in biblical, historical, theological, cultural, and missiological reflection in community. We hope that you will join us in this mission of worship renewal so that we may all come to a more unified understanding of our triune God and lead others into his rightful worship. All right, how's it going, Jim? It's good to see you again. We're back with another episode. This time, we're going to be focusing in on the second of the four pillars of worship that we were kind of doing a little introduction on a few episodes ago. The last time we talked about the gathering rites and the importance of that And now we are at the Word, the Word of God, Holy Scripture, something that can either be done so profoundly beautifully, or it can be a real letdown. (laughs) I've seen it both ways. And it's something that I think, again, all four of these pillars can certainly be overlooked in, in their importance. But when we talk about the Word of God, the living Word being preached to us, there's a lot to get into. So Jim, I'm going to turn it over to you to get the conversation started, but where where do you start? Where do you start when you talk about the word of God in our Sunday worship? I think we start with the idea that the the Judeo-Christian God is a God who speaks. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but but uh, Karl Barth said that's one of the distinctive qualities of the Judeo-Christian God is that God s- speaks. And as God speaks, he also then listens. So we're, we have this dialogical relationship with, with God. But it's a dialogical relationship that's rooted around the Paschal mystery, right? And it's rooted on the idea that, that in, the, in the life, death, burial, or passion, death, burial, uh, resurrection, ascension, glorification, and, and second coming of Christ, Within that whole Christ event, we have the the basis of how we can be then in a dialogical relationship with with the God of the universe, the God who is completely other than us. So in that relationship, God is always speaking. He speaks to us through through nature. He's, he actually says in the Psalms that his his wisdom is made known in the created order. So we can definitely see God throughout the world in, in the creation around us. Many times I take silent walks at night and I ask the Lord to let the creation speak to me. And quite that, often it actually really does speak. Very Franciscan outlook. I love that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But how does God speak to us most clearly? Well, most clearly and most vividly, he speaks to us through his word. His word, is, as it's manifested in his people Israel, his word has been manifested throughout salvation history, and the words that we have manifested within now the apostolic tradition of the Christian faith, not only the words of the apostles, Paul, James, Peter, and others, but and John, 
But especially now in the words from the gospel, where are the actual words of Jesus. So there's there's almost like a like a hierarchy of how God speaks to us in general revelation to the world, but in very specific revelation through His Word. So this makes the what we do in in the service of the Word of extreme importance because it's God Himself speaking to us. Right. Uh, there was a, a homily, I think from 2018, that Pope Francis gave. And I just want to read a, a little snippet here from it where he talks about the importance of the liturgy of the Word. And actually, he touches on quite a bit of what you had just mentioned there, Jim. He says, quoting now, There God speaks to us, and the same Holy Spirit who inspired the sacred scriptures opens our minds and hearts to that living Word. At the table of God's Word, we find nourishment for our lives as we listen to the Old and the New Testaments, proclaim the one mystery of Christ, and call for our response. Drawing from the richness of the church's lectionary, the liturgy of the word invites us to silent openness to God's saving message as it resounds in the ecclesial assembly and continues God's constant dialogue with his people, the church. Since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, we need to be constantly open to and challenged by that word in our lives as individuals and in our life as a church. So that brings up a very interesting issue, and that is, what is our posture during most of the service of the Word? We, we do stand for the gospel, right. but for most of the readings and, the, and for the homily, we are seated. But we're not seated because we're relaxed. Right. We're seated in an attentive posture, always right. being attentive to like the Word. Like a student in school. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Like a student yeah. in school. Yeah. Yeah. Listening, listening actively, listening openly. Jeremy Driscoll brings up this point that that the words that are read, especially now in the in the epistles and the gospel, contain in a preeminent way the apostolic faith. In a preeminent way, the apostolic faith. Of course, we see that apostolic faith in the in the Old Testament as well. We see it as it's as it's uh, prefigured in the Old Testament. We, and then we see it fulfilled in the New Testament readings. One of the questions that's come to me at IWS quite often is why is it that we retain the reading of the gospel for someone who is is ordained? And I think it has to do with this this idea of Jeremy Driscoll that it's an apostolic faith that we're proclaiming. And when we're, when we're proclaiming the, the words of Jesus, we're proclaiming him in that ongoing, continuous apostolicity that is inherent in those who have the the destination of being ordained to do such. So it's it's the continuation of the words of Jesus to the the apostolically ordained who proclaim that that gospel. So I think that's an, that's an important uh, thing to keep in mind. Absolutely, and just you know, it also highlights the where we're putting the gospel. I mean, you you had touched on this maybe even before as we were just kind of prepping for this, but of how, you know, it's not to say that one method of God speaking to us is better than another, but if we're getting it directly from the source, which is, of course, his gospel, then there's going to be a difference. So there's also one, an aesthetical thing, where you're seeing the minister approaching the pulpit or the ambo to proclaim the word of God. And then rather than, you know, one of us, one of us lay ministers that proclaims the other readings, it does elevate it and it gives the people another tangible way of seeing 
oh, okay, this I'm standing now. I'm I'm at attention. So I was at a different kind of attentiveness when I was sitting, but now I'm at attention and I'm seeing this movement of the main minister or a deacon come over to proclaim God's word to me. And it's, again, those, those tangible things I think we overlook, but it really highlights, hey, this is the moment where you're about to receive the message. Listen. Yeah, so, so how important is this word? Well, by this word, by the word of God, by Jesus himself, the incarnation of the word of God, everything was created. Everything right. that is was created by that word. We sometimes, we in the Protestant world particularly, I think, we sometimes take that a little bit for granted. We, we are very oriented towards the, towards the written word, toward the Bible. Is the written word of God, but but we have to realize that the Bible is itself an icon of who stands behind that, right. who is Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who is the Word of God to us. He's the Word become flesh, and He's the one who gives us ultimate clarity on on the Word of God. So that's that's I think it's an important thing to remember. So we we always start off with an Old Testament reading. Right. The Old Testament reading is, of course, from the first from the first testament. So, so we see the gospel prefigured in the Old Testament. Then the response to the Old Testament is the psalm, and it, I should say throughout this whole service of the word, there is this, there 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 are these many calls and responses, right? Yep, absolutely. So we don't just we don't just listen to the Old Testament and then go on to another reading. We actually respond then with with a psalm, which which gives thanks for the word that we've. I mean, in our hearts give thanks to the word that we. We heard proclaimed it also then sets us up for the next reading exactly after the song and of course most that's times oh sorry so it, and of course in most times there the psalm is sung right we have a lot of times where the responsorial psalm is something that is sung so it's almost a moment where we're taking that inward step to internalize what we've just heard in the first reading and make our response a sung prayer back because obviously the psalms were written to be sung so we're able to now enter into it in that harmonic way, which we talked about in the gathering, right? How our harmony together is that really uh, beautiful and visual notion of corporate worship. I mean, we're doing this as one and that harmony through sound and song is a very good highlight of that. Yeah, good point. We should always sing the Psalms. I sing the Psalms every morning in my own, my own prayer time. There are all kinds of ways of singing psalms. You can sing psalms with using chant. Right. You can sing psalms using metrical settings, such as "Oh God, our help in ages past." You can use psalms in an in a responsorial way, which is that the the congregation sings an antiphon or a response, and the 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 one presenting the psalm then sings all the verses with right. the, with the congregation response. That's actually a pre a pre-literate type of, uh, of psalmody. And that's the kind of we use mostly within our convocational services at IWS. And in your Catholic context, that's what you use as well. Very much. Um, and then there's also, you can do antiphonal psalmody, which you find quite often in the monastic tradition, but we've done it at IWS as well, where right. we sing a chant of some sort and the, the church is actually divided into two sides. So one side sings sings one verse, the next side sings the, ne the next verse, that kind of thing. And then the, the Psalms sometimes, in some cases, particularly in the daily office, are followed by uh, a Christological doxology to give a Christological yes. focus to the Psalms. Now, we don't do that in a, a normal psalmody on in a in a Eucharistic service as right. a, like an IWS, but we do it in our morning chapel services at IWS. We sing a doxology with the Psalms. 
and the, one of the great things about the Psalms, I think, is that they they go through a whole range of emotions, right? There are Psalms that are Psalms of of praise that that are, and joyful, jubilant Psalms. There are Psalms of lament. There are Psalms that actually ask for retribution. <laughs> on one's enemies. There, there are psalms that proclaim the greatness of God. There are psalms that, that, that deal with the great sorrows of life. And, they, and it's, it's an amazing range of emotional appeal. Yeah, I think, it, in fact, it was at IWS. I can't remember exactly who I was discussing this with, but they were in my doctoral cohort. And we were talking about, I believe they were going to do their thesis on lament. And I had asked, oh, that, that's interesting. Like, what has prompted this in your context to want to talk about that? And they said, we're always so praise oriented, which is great, but we're always just happy, 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 happy. And we don't see the lament side of things and where that leads us from this idea of darkness to light. So like this year here at Newman, our Advent theme is out of darkness. And then each week is a different focus. So like out of darkness, hope, out of darkness, courage, out of, because we have to understand that the darkness does exist. And the lament and all of that does exist because it is a total human emotion, but it exists for us to come out of into that joy. You can't just have the joy. So it was a really cool conversation to have with them about, you know, there are some contexts out there that don't really experience the lament or kind of overlook it to just focus on the, the praise oriented. Yeah. And that's, that's what life is all about actually is going through those <laughs> times of fear and times of anger and times of despair and times of joy and times of rejoicing and how, how we go about expressing those things to the Lord. I've often used Psalm 88 as an example of a, of a of lament psalm when I teach on the issue of theodicy or why bad things happen to, to right. good people and for, and for which there's often no way to understand those things that happen to us. Psalm 88 is, is one, I think maybe the only psalm that ends with no resolution. It leaves, it leaves the last verses and my only friend is silence. <laughs> that's, that's pretty, pretty sobering. But have, how many of you have felt that way before? I know I have. I've felt awesome. sometimes my silence is my only friend. Yeah. So Which can oddly enough be a comforting thing in prayer, right? Exactly. Where we go, yeah. silence is our only friend, but God comes to us in the silence of our hearts. So the, the moments where I'm so frustrated at life and I have the, of course, benefit of working for the church so I can walk over and sit in God's presence and just right. be still. And in those moments right. where I'm doing that, I'm like, man, the darkness of this silence can also be paired with the joy of this silence because there is something inherently beautiful about just sitting in the presence of God and not having to say a word. You don't have right. to say anything. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Right. So back to the Old Testament reading for a for for just a moment. We we are not Marcionists. The the her, the heretic Marcion saw such a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament that he said there must be two different gods. There must be a god of the Old Testament and a god of the New Testament. No, we are not. We stand against Marcionism. We see the entire biblical narrative as being as being God's revelation to us, Old and New Testament. So when we read the Old Testament. We read it Christologically. We read it through the through the through the lens of of what God has done through us in Jesus in bringing fulfillment to the to the Old Testament. But it's still it's it's very valid. And the 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 human emotions, the human situations that are that are available to 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 enter into in the Old Testament readings are are beautiful. They're 
they're horrible. They're visceral. They, they draw us into a whole nother strange world, but that's, but it's the real world. It's the real world of the, of the, of the biblical narrative. Yeah. So then we move from the Psalm into, oh, by the way, we, we do end the reading for the Old Testament and for the epistle, both with the leader saying the word of the Lord. And we say, we, our response God. is, thanks be thanks to God. God. Right. Yep. Why is that? Because it is the word of the Lord and we are thankful for it. Again, going so, back to revelation and response, we've been, the word has been revealed to us and now we respond. Thanks be to God. Right. Right. So then we go into the epistles. The epistle, um, uh, reading is usually one of the old Testament, one of the other, or sometimes it's the, it's the Acts of the Apostles, but they're all they're all apostolic writings. So these are all writings from people who have had apostolicity assigned to them, mm-hmm. and they, so they're they're the ongoing word of the Lord. And quite often they're commentaries or or bridges in some ways between the Old Testament and the Gospel. They 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 actually accentuate and explain in many ways what's going on in either the Old Testament or the Gospel or both together. It's a beautiful bridge. And, and then we go into the reading of the gospel. The reading of the gospel, as Bob Weber would say, was is festooned with an alleluia. We festoon that appropriately and especially because these are the words of Jesus that we're speaking. And, and there's a special apostolicity that goes with the proclamation of the words of Jesus. Yeah, and I think, you know, so how I touched on it earlier about, you know, it stands apart when the specific minister goes over to the ambo, but there are also other things that may not be in all contexts, but I think something that's just kind of important for us to understand and share in. There are moments, so in in the Catholic context, when it's like a, a bigger liturgy, say Easter or Christmas or things like that, sometimes incense is used to incense the book of the Gospels, to show, again, now the, the living word that we are about to express is even more so because it's the story of Christ's birth or it's the story of his resurrection or it's the story. And now we are incensing this. We are spreading this fragrance over the living word of God. And then also um, the, in, the Lord be with you is given as a greeting before the gospel is read. The Lord be with you and with your spirit being the response. And then we trace the sign of the cross on our foreheads, our mouths and our chests. May God be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart to say that I am trying to receive this in all of my senses. And I think it's a really beautiful, um, again, I, and this could just be my Catholic side coming out, but I love the tangible. I love the things that can physically connect me. That's why I love when there's a bunch of stained glass. I like when there's statues. I like to be connected in that way. And maybe it's because I have ADD, I don't know, but it's just, you know, it's just the way that I can connect. And I think that, you know, it, while it may not be present in all contexts, I think it's just something important to, to talk about or at least mention. Yeah. So we've only used incense actually at IWS one time. I love incense, by the way. I would use it every time. We, I mean, when I was a student at Oral Roberts University in my undergraduate work, we would constantly have incense during our, <clears throat> our Friday night communion services oh, beautiful. at, at ORU. Yeah, it was never, it, there was never a, a, a thurible or a thurifers had to swing this at the thurible, but there was always a burn, burning behind the, the altar or on the altar at, at, at Oral Roberts, there was always a bowl of incense. So when I walked into the chapel at ORU, it smelled like worship. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's a great way to put it. 
Yeah, oh, it was just just amazing. So the only time he ever used it at IWS was actually at Bob Weber's funeral by at Bob's request. So he requested that the incense be used in the preaching and the in the in the proclamation of the gospel. So we did in Bob's funeral. There was uh, there was incense uh, on the altar. It was brought down the aisle, I think, by our friend Court Bender back in those days. Uh, Court was a student then, and uh, he actually I think carried the bowl of incense down to the Bob's funeral. So following the uh, proclamation of the gospel, we go into the the homily. So the homily is a is a, is a, is a very important part of the service. The homilist, the one who preaches the homily, is is actually standing in the person of Christ as he does this. Just like the person who who celebrates the, the Eucharist is standing in the person of Christ, the homilist is also he's he's standing into in the person of Christ and helping us to enter into. A, a new and a strange world, God's world, the way God sees everything that's that's that is. And some sometimes I mentioned this in the last podcast too. And some sometimes the homilist is considered to be a mystagogue. This means he's just not he's not just giving a speech. He's not just giving a, a teaching lesson, an exegesis or an ex, exposition of scripture from a teaching standpoint. He's actually more like a guide leading us into the mysteries of the faith, a mystagogue, someone who's teaching the mysteries, someone who will lead us into the, 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 the strangeness of the biblical world and what that looks like, what the, what the biblical worldview is like, helps us to explore those mysteries of the faith. I like the way Paul Tillich said it. Paul Tillich said that a good homilist affects a correlation between the question and the answer. So there are, there are many questions we have that are common to the human condition. The homilist uses the, the, the scriptures to make a correlation between those human questions that we have and the biblical answers we have for our human questions to help us be, to help us act more biblically, to help us to live more biblically, to think more biblically, and to, to look at the world more in a biblical format. I would suggest also that a good homilist uses all four senses of the uh, the interpretation of the gospel. For for example, the, the well, the four senses are the literal sense, the allegorical sense, the tropological sense, and the anagogical sense. And let me let me explain that to you. Literal sense is literal. Whatever's there it means that if, if it says that Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem, he was walking towards Jerusalem. Right. Or how about the 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 Maus Road story? The, right. the two disciples were walking away from Jerusalem. Well, they were literally walking away from Jerusalem. The allegorical interpretation would say, well, why were they walking away from Jerusalem? Because it's not stated it's explicitly in the scripture. Well, Jerusalem is the center of the life of God of, of the nation of Israel, right? So when these two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem, they're literally walking away from whatever God is doing. They're obviously in despair. They're, down, they're downcast but they're literally walking away from the source of their answers to why they're downcast. <laughs> they're walking away from Jerusalem. So that's the allegorical reading to that. Tropological means how does this change your moral and ethical life? What is it about this particular passage that will make you live differently or think differently or act differently? Um, so again, in this, in this, bring up the story of the of the of the walk from Emmaus, <laughs> right? These two disciples. So Jesus meets them, right? Explains the whole, explains the, the the entirety of the gospel about about himself in the gospel. Well, in, in the 
as the story goes, they, he, they invite him to stay for dinner, and in the breaking of the bread, he disappears, and they run to Jerusalem because they've realized now that the despair they had was a, a false despair because really Jesus was alive and that he was indeed resurrected. And it's time for them to get back to Jerusalem and find out what to, what to do next, right? So they had their, their tropological journey. The, the last interpretive lens is this andragogical. So that means, what does it mean for the, for the finality of all things? Right. How does this represent an eschatological orientation? So again, going to the, to the, to the, the Road to Mary's uh, story, Jerusalem is a type of the new Jerusalem, of the heavenly Jerusalem, right? So these, while these disciples are running to the earthly Jerusalem to find out more about the resurrected Jesus, there's also there a call for us to remember the fact that this is not the end of all things, that there is a, a greater much more beautiful existence to come. I mean, Im- immensely, infinitely more beautiful existence to come in the eschaton. And what do, what, do, what do these experiences on earth mean to us as we approach the finality of all things? So those four senses, I think, have to be kept in mind when, when you're doing, when, when the homilist is preaching and when the people are listening to the homily. We have to keep those four senses. In, um, in four- Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, Bob Weber always said, you know, that, this idea of ancient future worship, I think ancient future fits perfectly into these four types of interpretation, right? Because of course that anagogical is that future, that looking onward, that that moving forward and the ancient being connected. Okay, what was the literal thing that happened? What was the thing that actually occurred? And then in between it, of course, those other two. And I think the one that, you know, even just as someone that would just attend worship, I think we find more practical for ourselves is the tropological, right? The moral. It's, it's yeah. the idea of what am I getting from this for my own personal life and being able to attach myself into the story of God that I'm hearing. And I think that can be such a difficult thing, right? Because we look and go, well, I've heard this story before and I don't know, I kind of hear it differently each time. So does that mean that the moral idea changes? Does that mean this is something's different? What am I supposed to take from it a new time? Instead of looking at it for what it is and just accepting and receiving and being able to pray with what we've received and then be able to make that into, okay, this was the moral message. This is the way that I'm supposed to go about my Christian life. And without, I think, those other types of interpretation, that one kind of falls apart. Because if we're not looking at it, again, for the full context of its historical underlying meaning, the connection of the events of the Old Testament with the New Testament, all of that, how can we garner anything that has any relevance to us? Well, thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit, too. The Holy Spirit yeah. Yeah. Us, can, can, can use a, a, the same passage with us in an infinite number of ways in, in yep. terms of the tropological or the, or the, the ethical moral formation that goes, that goes, um, goes on in our own lives, right? right. We, you, can, you and I can be sitting side by side and, and we will hear the same message and you may, you, you may walk away thinking, well, I got, I got to be nicer to people. And I might walk away right. saying, I got quick kicking my dog at home or whatever it might be. <laughs> there could be different, a whole different interpretations because we have different lives. So we have right. to see, see the way in which the Lord is, uh, is teaching us through those, through those passages. And boy, do we need that. We need the work of the Holy spirit to, to show us what areas of, of our lives we need to, we need to be addressing. So much because it, and I keep going back to that word reception and, and receiving it. 
because if we're not, it's almost like when we talked about, you know, praying in silence and just being still and being open to whatever God is saying, I think that's the way that we're going to hear that tropological. We're going to get that type of interpretation is if we're actually open to receiving it. There are so many times I'm sure, I'm sure Jim, you've experienced this where you go to worship and you know, whether you're working the, the uh, service or not, and you're just so blocked by whatever's happening in life that you are just so closed to even hearing, like, basically I'm listening to the priest give the gospel, but I'm not really listening. Uh, my ears are open, but they're not open to my heart. And so being able to, you know, there's, you can be connected in a just I'm present way, or you can actually be connected and receive it internally into your soul, into your, your being as a Christian. So I think keeping that idea of, am I just sitting and listening to someone talk to me or am I receiving one, the word of God and two, the interpretation that is it's being spoken to me. Yeah. Speaking of interpretation, St. Augustine said that all good, um, by the way, let me, let me preface this by saying that neither Kevin nor I are sophisticated homiletics professors. <laughs> no. Well, at least I don't think you are. Are you? No. 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 <laughs> Not my thing. No. <laughs> Both of I've I've had to preach before, but um, yeah. same. Uh, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not sophisticated homiletics professors. But I will say this: that I I, I would say that Saint Augustine was a sophisticated homilist himself. He was probably sophisticated the finest in a few ways. Yeah. Yeah, finally, probably the finest homilist of the early church. But he said that, and he's quoting, by the way, classical rhetoric of Cicero when he says this, but he says that all good homilies need to do three things. They should convince, convict, and delight. So to me, as I, re- as I look at that framework of convince, convict, and delight, I think of the, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Yeah. So, convict someone or, or I'm sorry convince someone of that that's a convincing move to convict someone of their own sin or own their own falling short of the, of the target which is sin that needs to be part of the a homily a good homily and third the delight of the of the homily and the delight in many ways is the beauty of it right so i think i think good rhetoric and good oratory is going to embrace all three of those the idea of of convincing, convicting, and delighting. The best sermons I've heard have all three aspects. So the best homilies I've heard have all three aspects. I, I, I would agree. And it's it's funny when you, you know, when you think of those three words together of, I think the one sometimes where I can tell if I didn't leave with something, it's that it was missing the delight. That it yeah. was missing an aspect that allows me to delight in God's word. I mean, especially, and here's the thing, it can be, it can be the difficult word. It can be the the lamenting word, but you still find the delight in it. And if if you can't do that, then you're not seeing it for the fullness of what it is and, and the revelation that it's trying to give to you. So I think anytime I leave and I go, I, I don't really know if it's me or if that homily just wasn't, I don't know, given a specific way. I, I think it's really because it's missing the the third aspect there, delight. So von, von Balthasar's reflection on the transcendentals, he says the, we, he starts his systematic theology with, with the beautiful. Right. I think his sensibility was when you start with the, with the beauty of God, the glory of God, as he called it, the beauty of God, then that makes way 
that that gives us more openness to receive both the the truth and the goodness of God. Quite often in the arguments we have with 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 non-Christians, if yeah. we start with with what's true or what's what's right or good, we'll end up just in a in a head bashing argument. But if we start with what's beautiful, that has a way of attracting people uh, into then the good and the true. Right. So I, I think that's that's a that's a valuable thing to remember that homilies, good homilies, should should delight. Yeah. Uh, to make to make way for the truth and the goodness of God. Then we move from from the homily into the creed, the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed comes from the Council of Nicaea in the year three twenty five. Why do we stand up and read together, or recite together this ancient statement of our faith? Well, in many ways, I think this ancient statement of our faith summarizes the entirety of the Christian faith what it means. And, and, we, and we, when we stand up and say this, we say we believe in, the, in God the Father, we believe in, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the church as the ongoing incarnation of God in the world, the four we believes. The Nicene Creed was developed to fight actually the heresy of Arianism. So Ar- Arius had the idea that Jesus was a superhuman and also slightly deity as well. So there was a combination of deity and humanity, not completely human, not completely deity, but a combination of the two, probably formed by, you know, the, the mythical framework of, of ancient Greece. The Council of Nicaea said no. So every time we get up and recite the Nicene Creed, we're saying no to Arius. No, Jesus is fully God and fully man together. Right. So that, that makes it very important. I was reciting a sermon that's done every, every two years, I think by, by R.C. Sproul's organization, Ligonier Ministries. And they do, I think it's every, every two years, they do this survey. One of the questions that came out, this is about five or six years ago, one of the questions was, uh, true or false, Jesus is the highest and, great, and greatest creation of God. Hmm. I think it was somewhere around, I don't know, that's a high percentage, 60, 70% of Christians in the, in the U.S. said, yeah, that sounds right. He's the highest and greatest creation of God. So I brought that up to my choir. I said, can you believe that people would say that, that he's the highest and greatest creation of God? And I had a choir member saying, well, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> I, said, I said, no, no. Well, what do you say every Sunday morning? He's, he is a God from he eternally begotten the Father, God from God, light, light from light. From light. <laughs> True God from true God, begotten, not yeah. made, of right. one being with the Father, through him all things were made. So I said, you recite that every Sunday. Do not realize what you're saying. <laughs> begotten, not made. He is not the highest creation of the Father because he's not a creation of the Father. He is fully God, fully man from, from all eternity. And I think you have to always tax up with the boy, I say this every week, but am I really paying attention to what I'm saying? Am I, yeah. am I stating, am I actually stating this creed of which I say I live my life on? <laughs> and which many people fought and died over for uh, right. over, over many years. And it deconstructs so many heretical perspectives that, that, that people have. It's, it's a very, very important thing for us to get up and actually state what we believe in. I, my friend, Kirk Dunkel, who is the, was a form, formerly our, our host pastor for, for IWS and then became the, the president of General Assembly in New York City. Kurt used to say, we say the creed because we're, we're in essence saying, I know what the preacher just said was this, but here's what we really believe. as <laughs> a corrective to the homily. <laughs> right. There's a certain amount of truth in that, I think, from Kurt's perspective. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Then we go from, from the creed into the prayers of the people. And in these prayers, we, we actually enter into our priestly role of praying for the world, praying for, for, for not just our neighbors, but for those on the other side of the world who are, who are, who are in, in, uh, in turmoil and struggle. We, Kevin and I were just talking before this broadcast about some of our friends were going through the, the civil war in Myanmar. That's a good time to pray for our friends in Myanmar together so we can be praying for, for peace in those regions or other regions of the world where there are conflicts. So praying for peace, praying for health for people who are sick, praying for those who have just lost, lost loved ones, praying against the, this continuing pandemic, praying for the gospel to be, to be preached faithfully throughout the world. So these, these are times when we stand in our priestly office as, as all of us are priests before, before God and pray for those that, who need our prayers. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, Jim, this, this has been a really uh, wonderful conversation just about, you know, and of course we could spend hours, days, months talking about what the word does for us in our, in our time of worship. And I really want to, first of all, say, I appreciate how you separated the idea of just exegetical ways of reading the Bible from how are we receiving the word of God? in our worship service. I think that was a really beautiful, beautiful thing that, that we need to all come to understand. But yeah, so that is kind of our, our little spiel here on the second pillar of worship. Well, yes. One other thing I want to say about, about the priestly function of the prayers of the people is that we, we pray for really the life of the world. We pray for the life of God in the world. Yeah. But what a perfect lead-in that is to the, to the celebration of the Eucharist, which is yeah. offered up for the life of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's, the, it's the perfect bridge, really, between, between the service of the word and what comes next, which is the service of the, of the table, where we offer that up for the life of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And we will absolutely be getting to that third pillar. Our next cast will be on ecumenism. Very much looking forward to that, discussing how can we all be one? How can the church all be one? Which is, of course, God's will for all of us. And then, yeah, we would be going back into that third pillar of the Eucharist. So we'll be getting some more of these out here pretty soon. Thank you to anybody who has been listening and getting involved. As always, you can check out our Facebook page, the IWS Facebook page. You can go to the website, iws.edu, the Instagram, IWSFL, and check all this out. The podcast can be found really most places where major podcasts are, Apple, Google, Pocket Casts, all of those. And yeah, please feel free to reach out in any way to get involved in the discussion. And we thank you so much for your support and your listening. And may God bless you.